Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. I am Lucia Matuonto and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations books, and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. Today, we are headed to Vancouver, Canada to speak with Sebastian de Castel. Sebastian is a fantasy novelist and his latest book, The Malevolent Seven, comes out in May. So, Sebastian, welcome to the RV. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure to have you here today. And I know that you love to travel with your wife. <laughs> so what would be the most memorable trip you guys have been on so far? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, we've been on so many trips together. You know, when you're traveling, uh, they're all, almost always memorable, just memorable for different reasons. When I think of what's the most memorable trip I've been on recently, certainly I, I go back to... Uh, 2015, when uh, we were cycling in Vietnam and Cambodia for two weeks, which is an absolutely lovely trip. There's so much wonderful cycling to do and the people are lovely. Um, but uh, what made it memorable, memorable was that all of a sudden I was afflicted with uh, kidney stones while I was there. And so um, all of a sudden uh, found myself on a, on a tuk-tuk, which is the little motorbikes okay. mm -hmm. with, uh, with the little um, passenger seats at the back, being taken to a doctor there who thought that I had a burst appendix and said I had to go to the mm -hmm. first hospital they could find. Um, but of course, all the guidebooks, uh, the Western guidebooks will tend to say, oh, if you're in Cambodia, don't go to the hospital. Just you have to take a flight somewhere else. But there was no time for that. Um And so they, we went to this uh, hospital that was uh, newly, quite newly built. And, um, and actually, it was surprising. It was one of the most wonderful healthcare places and people I've ever uh, encountered in my life. They were so smart and so fast at diagnosing that it was not, uh, it was not um, uh, a burst appendix, but in fact, uh, kidney stones. And yeah, it was just such wonderful treatment. The doctor was hilarious. She was this very... Um, affable woman, but with very uh, striking personality. I ended up dedicating one of my novels to her because yeah. she was she has such a profound effect on me. Yeah, and it was such a just such a strange experience. I'd never had anything like that before, and so all of a sudden, when you're in um, when you're when you're hit with something that is relatively serious, so kidney stones can be quite serious when they when um, especially when they come on so fast. And you're in this entirely new place and you don't actually know the system very well. And so it was really my favorite conversation was um, she was convinced the moment I walked in the door that uh, that I had kidney stones. 
And, um, and I said, well, I don't know, this other doctor I saw, um, you know, thought it was uh, a burst appendix. And she said, no. And she, she said, I can tell immediately. And so they, they did an x-ray, but they didn't see the kidney stones in it. And I said, well, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's something else. And she said, no, I'm sure it's that, but, you know, we could do a CT scan, but I don't think, uh, I don't think we should do that. And I said, um, well, why not? And she said, well, because we don't know if your insurance is going to cover it and it's very expensive. And I, I said, well, you know, I mean, how, how bad can it be? And she said, oh, it's $400 if your insurance doesn't cover it. And I thought, well, $400 wow. isn't so bad. I said, like, no, no, that's fine. We'll, we'll just pay that. And, and the doctor said, it's a lot of money. And I said, no, trust me, it's fine. We can cover the $400. And she said, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a novelist. And she said, oh, no, 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 it's too expensive for you. <laughs> She's so I had kind. To, I, had to, I had to convince her over the course of 10 minutes that I actually earn a really good living as a novelist. <laughs> she thought that was the most preposterous thing in the world that anybody made, you know, uh, a good living uh, writing novels. Let's say that it was a good experience outdoor. There was a problem. And thank goodness was not a appendicitis or something i went to thailand i think people there are so lovely every everywhere we went people were incredibly kind and lovely and i I think it's easy to over interpret you know the experience that we have as tourists you know and, and and sort of assume that that's um shows us what everyone's like but i think in the case of I think in the case of Cambodia, especially um, when you just look at their recent history, you know, the, the the decades after the Khmer Rouge and the way that they've chosen to handle that, which is instead of trying to, you know, enact revenge on the Khmer Rouge and the people that participated in it. And, and I mean, that history is absolutely horrific. Like I don't have, there's nothing in the Canadian context other than the way that Canada's treated sometimes it's indigenous people. So, but, but we don't have anything in, in that context of how horrific that period of time was for them and what was done to them by their own government. And so the way that they've chosen to address that over the subsequent decades has been with a belief that you have to make peace and that you have to be compassionate towards everyone. And so I tend to think in the case of Cambodia, that some of that is true, that it you simply are encountering a culture where that compassion is taken very, very seriously. And that sort of understanding that we do kind of have to find a way to all build a bridge together and, and sort of find a peaceful way to coexist. So I was, yeah, I was, uh, I was amazed. It's absolutely worth visiting for anybody who's ever considering it. And again, I, I tell that story because sometimes when we're, when we're thinking of going to new places, we have this sort of fear, well, you know, what if, what if I get sick or what if something goes wrong? You know, we just sort of assume that countries that we're not very familiar with must, must not be very good at handling sort of uh, crises or taking care of us. But I was so amazingly well taken care of. It was really interesting coming back because um, I had to fly through Guangzhou in China to get back the next day. And so I was flying with kidney stones and um, and just sort of praying that the med- the, the painkillers that, uh, the, that they gave me would do the trick. But I was coming back to Canada where we have quite a good, like a very well-regarded healthcare system. Um, and it is a very good healthcare system, but it was very interesting to me the, the day that I got back and went into hospital here, because that's the first thing I had to do and it was go, okay, well, now I need treatment for these kidney stones. And just realizing that I so badly missed the hospital yeah. in Cambodia, just because everyone was was so, you know, just kind. And they laughed at me a little bit because I was, uh, the, because the hospital gowns were, uh, were all named for people who are much smaller 
smarter than me. So it was quite hilarious mm-hmm. trying to put that on. But mm-hmm. yeah, it was a really interesting experience. And I mean, that's what travel's about. Travel's about going on adventures. Yes, I, I agree completely. And Sebastian, your, na- your name sounds French. You were born in Montreal, Canada, which is the French-speaking part of the country. You are British. So do you speak French? I do. My French is pretty bad now, but um, so my first spoken language was was English. My mother was was British. My father was a French citizen. He was naturalized uh, as a British citizen because he had uh, they had both fought in World War II. Interestingly enough, so my father was quite old when I was born. He was fifty nine when I was born, um, and and my mother was forty four. And they had come to Canada after the war. So at home, we spoke English because my mother didn't speak French, but they wanted me to go to French school. And so my first, uh, that was a, one of the scariest days of my entire life because I was six years old. I hadn't gone to kindergarten. And the first day of going to school and nobody spoke English and I didn't speak a word of French and I had no idea what to do. And the the thing that I remember most, because I was crying my eyes out at the time, uh-huh. I was this little kid, I was scared. Nobody would speak to me in my language. I had no idea what was going on. And then, um, but what was amazing is it couldn't have taken more than a few days before I was starting to understand French. And it just because, you know, when you're young, you pick up language very quickly, but also when you're just suddenly in that completely immersive experience where your entire day at school is happening in French and uh, in, in this other language, you just start to pick it up so quickly. Um, and so it was interesting because my first uh, written language ended up being French. I, I didn't know how to read in English at first. And so uh, I remember the day that I suddenly realized I could also read in English because I was never functionally taught to read in English, right? Uh-huh. It's a little kid, but you know, now I think hopefully we we teach kids to read a little bit earlier than than uh, than was the case for me. But it was, uh, yeah, that was amazing. I just, I'll, I'll, I don't think I'll ever experience anything like that again, being so completely in this sort of state of shock where it's just all these people speaking these words that I could not understand. I don't know, but it maybe <laughs> it was traumatic. You went to school and you couldn't understand anyone. And then, but, but then you learned how to speak French and very quickly, as you said. But you know, one of the things it did for me that it only occurs to me now that that was really quite helpful is um, you know how they say that 90% or 80% of communication of, of verbal communication or of, of interpersonal communication is nonverbal. It's body language, it's expressions, it's tone. There's all these cues. And so that's what you have to rely on, right? With yeah. any of us, if you're suddenly speaking to someone who doesn't speak the same language as you, you suddenly have to rely on those. And I think I learned to do that really well because of that experience as a child, because I've had other experiences later in life where I'd be, for example, in, um, I was in the, the Netherlands in a hospital, interestingly enough. Um, it seems like all, yeah, all my stories involve hospitals now, but uh, talking to a fellow who was, we, we was sitting in the hallway, we we're, you know, waiting for a doctor of, as was um, this other fellow who was, I think, Greek. Neither of us, he didn't speak English. I didn't speak Greek. Neither of us spoke Dutch except a little bit. We spoke very little Dutch, but we spent like two hours there, like basically telling each other jokes after a while. You know, we do just enough words of Dutch to get a piece of it, but then the body language and the voice and everything else plays in. And so I think that experience of being a little kid and having to try to understand this other language, all these people without knowing the language kind of stuck with me. And so now I often feel quite comfortable, even if I'm, if I'm interacting with someone speaking a a language, I don't speak just because I know like that we can find a way to communicate. It gives you a certain confidence in that 
universal set of of communication tools that human beings have with each other. That is my, uh, you know, my understanding of being relatable is being able to communicate to each other, even if you don't speak the same language, but to be able to connect. And this is, that's why this podcast is all about mm -hmm. connections. And also your writing journey started at around 16 years old, as I remember you told us. Can you tell us what made you want to be an author? Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, it's interesting because I, I started writing very late relative to most uh, authors. In fact, what happened when I was 16 was that I, I decided I wanted to be a bard. Um, I was uh, I was camping uh, by myself. I was, I was 15, 16 years old. I was camping by myself on a an island. Um, there's a set of islands near British Columbia that are quite beautiful. And you can take these ferries from one to the other. And there's usually a campsite you can find somewhere. And I was, uh, I'd arrived way too early for a ferry. I was switching from one island to another. And so I had this four hour wait and I, there happened to be, um, uh, you know, a rack of books in the little, in the little coffee shop nearby. And on there was a book by an Australian author named Keith Taylor. And the book was called Bard. And it was about this character, Felimid MacFowl, who is this, you know, traveling, storytelling, sword fighting, adventuring character, you know, a, a bard. Um, and I just fell in love with that idea just on the spot. I just sat there reading it and I just thought, oh my God, this is the, this is it. This is what I want to be. Of course, there are no jobs for bards uh, if you look in the newspaper. Um, but then over the course of the, of the next decades, you know, I ended up becoming a musician and a traveling musician at that and a um, I got into fencing and ended up choreographing sword fights for theater productions. And, and then eventually, uh, you know, we ended up writing books. So I got to have that career. I just had to do it in the aggregate. Sounds interesting is that you read a book and then you get inspired and you end up doing what you read about. Now I'm curious about your new book that's coming in May, The Malevolent Seven. Can you quickly tell us what this book is about? Yeah, the, the Malevolent Seven is, um, it's my attempt, I suppose, to write uh, a fantasy version of the Magnificent Seven, or at least a, a bit of an homage. So a lot of people, if, who, whether they've seen the Seven, Seven Samurai, which is a famous Kurosawa film that was inspired by, yeah. in part by um, Italian Westerns. Uh, and then the Magnificent Seven became a a, a gunfighter movie, um, of which there's been a couple of different versions. I wanted to do something like that, but with um, but with wizards. 
Um, and so it's a, it's a book about a group of mercenary wizards who make their living selling their spells to the highest bidders. Um, you know, so you have a typical army planning to take over another uh, another country. Uh, they need to take down a castle uh, of some kind or, 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 or an enemy army. And so they hire these, um, these mercenary wondrists, these uh, mages to come and, you know, fire off enough spells to kind of put the hurt on that uh, enemy army or tear down a castle. But these seven end up getting into a um, conspiracy where they're hired for a job that they don't really understand and they're not sh quite sure what's going on. And it turns out that there are forces at work that could tear uh, tear the world they live in apart completely. And uh, and all seven of them, uh, none of them uh, want to be heroes. Um, but it's a book about how sometimes even the worst of us have to uh, become a little heroic once in a while. And what genre does Ma Malevolent Seven belong to? It's very much in the uh, fantasy, in the sort of dark fantasy, um, but with a lot of irreverent humor to it. My agent always likes to say it's like Deadpool meets Game of Thrones. So there's a lot of wisecracking in it. I really love, uh, I, I for various reasons, I really love language. I love uh I love dialogue and the cadence of of dialogue. Um, so I like I like a good dirty joke as much as the next person. It's a book where there's a lot of uh, humor, even sort of when the fighting's going on. So it's a, there's a lot of uh, fantasy adventure to it. Um, dare I say, uh, swashbuckling, but uh, with uh, with spells rather than swords. Because um, my other series that I'm uh, most known for is the Great Coats, which was very much Thanks. swashbuckling fantasy with a little bit of you know, a little dash of Dumas and the Three Musketeers in there. But that same spirit is here. It's just that now I'm mostly writing about mages firing off very strange spells. Yeah, I was going to ask you what sets Malevolent Seven apart from the Great Coats novels. Maybe the characters are completely different. Yeah, it's it's set in a different world. The characters are different, specifically the main character of Malevolent Seven, Cade, uh, his name is Kate Ombra, and um, he's someone who has convinced himself that, you know, he, it's a nasty world and all you can do is try to, you know, do as well as you can inside of it. You know, take care of yourself, take care of the your your friends, but, you know, you can't be responsible for the rest of the world. And so as the story progresses, that worldview of his uh, becomes more and more challenged. Um, as he starts to realize that, you know, we don't always get, um, we don't always get the heroes we want. Sometimes we, we sort of have to try to become the hero as much as we can, even if we know we're not qualified. Kind of stoic. <laughs> it's a little, yeah, there's a little bit of stoicism that always runs through, um, my, uh, all of my, my books, I think. And, and just because I think it's a, it's stoic. Uh, it's not because I'm a, a big advocate of stoicism generally as a as a sort of a personal philosophy, but it does have certain um, virtues to it of of helping people sort of go. You can't really control external circumstances. You only control how you respond to them. And I think that is an emotional and a psychological landscape that all of us live in. So we all of us are contending with the problem of not being in control of our external situation, right? We don't have, we don't have the ability to change what happens or how people perceive us all the time. And so, um, and so I always find, I like stories where the characters, whether they're 
sword fighters or wizards or whatever else are contending with that problem that that we're all sort of dealing with and so that you can kind of explore how they do it i like it so and uh sebastian this book is a little different than even your previous books especially the writing process so what did you do differently yeah this is so i get asked quite often I, every writer these days gets asked about their writing process and um i'm always fascinated when i hear an interview with a writer who can sort of say right well my process is this i get up at this time in the morning and i always outline a book or i do this and i do this i've never had that experience i've tried but for me every single book has a completely different process and i never really know i sometimes don't i'm not even sure which book i'm going to end up writing because i might decide you know what this idea for a book is really good and and uh, and i think it could be very commercially uh, successful and i think it could be very artistically successful and i'll start trying to write it and it'll just fall apart immediately and then i'll end up writing something that i think is no one's going to want and no one's going to be interested in and that's uh, in effect what happened with malevolent 7 it was uh, february of 2020 and the pandemic had had just kicked in um and all of a sudden everything was sort of going on hold and i found myself um going you know what i need to write a, a book sometimes I'll, i'll write a book just for the sake of you know as a palate cleanser because i'll i'll have books under contract that i'm due to write so for example i have a, another great coats quartet that starts coming out next year and so i'll have books under contract where i know okay i should write that one but i'll find myself thinking you know what I, i'm not ready to write that yet i need to write a book just for myself and so quite often i uh, a lot of people don't know this about novelists is there's a lot of the times even novelists who are quite successful who, you know who have you, you know you'll see all their books out on the shelves they'll sometimes write books just for themselves that they know probably won't sell because it's either not in their genre or they're just exploring. And so I try to embrace that process. And I was finding at the time that I kept reading fantasy novels or or trying to read fantasy novels that felt very forced in the sense that they felt like they were trying to reassure the reader all the time like don't worry I'm just like you I understand your political concerns your social concerns and don't worry my fantasy is just a representation of our of our world but with these changes and and I just found that uh really un, unpleasant to to read and there's a fantasy happens to be a genre especially young adult fantasy and my spellslinger series is 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 quite a uh, is a fairly large series I think it's a, coming up on nine books now um in the young adult fantasy space where there's a lot of commentary on places like Twitter where people will say oh you shouldn't write this and you shouldn't write this and only this kind of person should write this and so you end up having all these rules that start getting created and as an author it's not that those rules are necessarily a bad idea by the way they may be perfectly valid ideas it's just that as an artist those are toxic because as soon as someone's telling you what you're not allowed to write it's very difficult for your brain to actually yeah. create and so i needed to do something um a little bit reckless um in terms of writing which is just i was i was going to write whatever the heck i wanted i wasn't going to explain anything i wasn't going to go and you know write you know write long explanations of how every piece of magic worked or or any of those things i was just going to write whatever the heck i wanted and be as bold and daring as i felt like because that's how you write the book that you most want to read right is when you're not inhibited 
And so I just blasted through this novel, um, writing this draft of this book that had all these different kinds of magic in it. And the, the mages were doing all these kind of dangerous and terrible things. And they weren't always nice people, but they were always had something about them that I that I liked. And I thought that I was just writing a book just for myself. And, and that's was the plan. I, I remember finishing it and thinking, well, maybe I could self-publish this under another name um, yeah. because I don't, you know, think I should do it under my own name. And, but my agent asked to see it. And then she said that she loved it, which I was completely surprised. And I thought, no, you're, you're, there's no way this is going to sell. And then she had retired and then assigned uh, and then found me a new agent and then he wanted to read it. And then he read it and said, I ah, just, this is great. Let's, let's put this out there. And I thought, no, it's not going to work. But then it turned out that my publishers, Quirkus, um, said that they liked it. And, uh, and, and then all of a sudden it was just on track to be coming out as a book. So I remember revising it thinking like, I better go through this thing and just find anything that's really horrible and, and, you know, get rid of it before it's too late. But, um, yeah, I think sometimes that's the, the, the nature of writing is that you have to, um, you have to go as far as your creative voice wants to go. That if you in, try to inhibit your creative voice, if you think, if you keep thinking about things like, is this new enough? Or is this, uh, do people like this kind of thing enough? Or, you know, if you keep thinking about the, it's funny because the reader is of course the person who we write for. But if you think about the reader too much while you're writing, you'll make something that they don't want to read because you'll just make something that's too, just too safe. Yeah, exactly. This book has already got four special editions of the hardback coming out, which has never happened for any of my books. And uh, it's got quite a bit of buzz going on around it. And so, yeah, it's funny. You just can't predict is it as an art, I, I guess it's true of all artists. You, you can't make predictions about what's going to be successful or not. You just have to make the best art you think you can and, and, and let the universe decide what to do with it. Yeah. And congratulations, first, because you had the courage to go and write what you felt like writing. And second, because your agent liked this book, and I, I can't wait for reading it. Actually, I love fantasy. <laughs> and I'm curious to know, also, are you currently working on anything new, Sebastian, you would like to share with us? Yeah, I'm I'm always it's funny, I'm always working on on so many projects in one form or another. So I have uh so for fans of the Spellslinger series, I I had started a couple of years ago writing um books about one of the characters that I love the most in that series, which is Farius Parfax, uh who is what's called an Argosi and the Argosi are these wandering uh sort of gambler philosophers. Um, and, uh, you know, because that's also set in a different world, but a world where there's a lot of magic, but the Argosi don't have magic. They don't need it. Their, their way is to use very human things to survive. So dance and martial arts and, uh, strategy and eloquence and all these things that all of us as human beings have access to. And I always love writing about that because I love writing about, um, how very human things like dance and eloquence can somehow be potent against, you know, what would seem like overwhelmingly powerful magic. Um, and so the third Argosi book, uh, Fate of the Argosi, comes out in August of this year. So Malevolent 7 comes out in May, and then Fate of the Argosi comes out in August. For people who like the Great Coats, I have a, a, a standalone Great Coats novel that's going to be coming out uh, later on this year called Crucible of Chaos, which is about a um 
a character that uh, I like to think of as he's a little bit Hercule Poirot meets uh, Fox Mulder from the X-Files um, with a lot of sword fighting. And then I'm working right now at this moment on a book called Our Lady of Blades, which is going to be one of the first books in the new Great Coats Quartet that uh, comes out next year in March of um, 2024. In between that, I've got a couple of mystery novels. I, I write mystery novels for fun sometimes, although I don't think anybody but me likes them. And then this, both Great Coats and Spellslinger are, have been optioned for film and television. So periodically I get to have interesting meetings with people to see if, uh, to see what they're planning with that. There's no guarantee anything will ever come of that, but it's always nice to get to yes. hang out with strange Hollywood people. Congratulations. Wow. That's amazing. So that means that you are a full-time writer. Oh yeah. Yeah. I have been for about the past eight years. I was very, very lucky. Um, my first book, Trader's Blade, uh, got me a four book deal. And then it sold a lot better uh, right off the bat than I think any of us really expected because it was coming out at a time where all the fantasy was what was called grimdark. Uh, and, and grimdark, for those who don't know, is it's very, very gritty fantasy with lots of people dying and awful things happening. And, but it feels very real to a lot of people. And Game of Thrones, of course, is one of the yeah. classic grimdark books. But I didn't want to write about that because I, I don't like writing about characters that I don't like myself necessarily. And so this was more like the Three Musketeers meets Game of Thrones. But it turned out that there were a lot of people that wanted something like that. And so, um, yeah, so that got me a four book deal. And then Spellsinger was an eight book deal. And then I signed another four book deal for more great coats. And so, yeah, I've, I've been really, really fortunate to be able to be a full-time author. It's tricky because it means you, you do have to write a lot. I, I often say like, I have to you know, I'll usually have um, maybe two books come out in a year, typically. But that means I probably have to write three or four books because maybe maybe one of those books is a book that I'm just writing for myself to clear my head so that I can do a good job of writing that next book. And maybe one book is a book that I'm serious about, but exploring, but, you know, my agent might need a year or two to be able to sell to a, a publisher. So you have to really be, you know, just writing a lot, which for me is always a struggle because I tend to uh, get writer's block quite easily, but then it's, you know, that's how you learn to push through the barriers. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's a really fabulous job. I recommend it to everyone. Yes. Maybe one day it can be, no, I'm a full-time podcaster, but yeah. I've been writing books. So maybe I can be both. Of course. Yeah. Eventually. And Sebastian, is there a message you would like to leave our listeners today? Well, first, I, I, I hope everyone who's listening, if, if they're inclined, gets a chance to read Malevolent 7 and, and enjoys it. But most of all, I suppose, like I say, the, I hope people take away the lesson that I learned from writing that book, which is, uh, which is that there is no substitute for just being absolutely true to yourself in the moment, even if you can't be all the time. Sometimes we can't be. Sometimes we have to be, you know, behave or think or act in ways that are necessary for you know, getting along with other people or getting by, but you have to make space for yourself sometimes, especially when you're trying to make art where you just allow yourself to be a hundred percent every good and every bad thing you are and, and put it on the page or put it on the canvas or put it in the dance performance, because that's, that's the only way to sort of discover what it is you have to say. So um, that's a bit of a convoluted way of saying like, it's, it's, what I learned from from writing Malevolent 7 is just uh, sometimes you really do have to be yourself for a while. Thank you. 
And Sebastian, where can we find you online, find your books, of course? Yeah, the easiest place to find me is, is at my uh, website, which is www.decastel.com. So that's D-E-C-A-S-T-E-L-L. Um, and uh, if people want to uh, contact me, there's a contact page. So decastel.com slash contact, or they'll be able to find it easily when they just go to the site. Um, I am on Twitter at, at decastel, uh, but I don't tend to spend a lot of time on Twitter or, or, or social media generally. So the website's the best way to find me. Sounds great. And I hope I go back to Canada soon because I love Canada. <laughs> I have great friends in Canada. Oh, We'd love to have you back in Canada anytime. Just let me know as soon as you publish your next book and success with your new book as well. Thank Thanks you. so much. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. And remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.